According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. We're still in this section, verses 1 through 9, and uh, about ready to wrap up verse 7 and get our first look at verse 8. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study this morning, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning, thankful for Your grace and truth, rejoicing in Your faithfulness, Father. Thankful for this soon-to-be-completed year and looking forward to the new year and watching more of your faithfulness unfold, step by step, moment by moment. You've had it all planned out since before the foundation of the world, but here we are, Father, observing your glory uh, day by day as we walk in the light. Thank you for such blessings. Thank you for such truth. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Feed us from your truth this morning. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we deal with things that we can't understand, we study and we try to understand, and yet we do. And uh, we have expressions like the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. And that is true. It surpasses all comprehension. Yet, we continue to comprehend. We continue to strive. And He opens our eyes. We have these, I call them conundrums, that seem to be contradictory. They seem to be oxymorons. They seem to, for example, God dwells in unapproachable light. And what does He call us to do? We approach Him in His unapproachable light. Or we have uh, the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding. Or we have uh, the uh, other things that surpass knowledge, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And yet we're told that we can know the love of Christ that surpasseth knowledge. So these things are, are blessings for us to behold, even if, in fact, they are somewhat contradictory. We, we can still embrace them. And so that's what we deal with here. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Uh, As it says, let your requests be made known to God. That's the command. Two commands there in verse 6. The in nothing command and the in everything command. It's the same command. It's just given both uh, in opposites, both ways there. So in nothing be anxious, but in everything let your requests be made known. Cause God to know what your requests are uh, connected to your anxiousness. And if you're obedient to verse 6, you have the promise of verse 7. Verse 7 is contingent upon your obedience in verse 6. Let's make that clear. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But don't expect God to uh, fulfill verse 7 if you're not fulfilling verse 6. I've had people complain that it just doesn't work, that they don't have the peace they're supposed to have. And I say, well, are you praying the way you're supposed to be praying? If you're not praying the way you're supposed to be praying, then I'm not surprised you don't have the peace that you think you're supposed to have because the peace is contingent upon the prayers. You're disobeying the command when it says, be anxious for nothing. You're still anxious. And uh, and, and then so now you're surprised why the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding is not being provided for you. When you obey verse 6, God will be faithful to display verse 7. And that uh, that is his uh, his end of the of the bargain here in this passage. All right. So the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. I gave this as a point of study, and this is under point five, sub point G, and I'm gonna get right back to it again here this morning. I call it unfathomable, unapproachable, unsurpassed. Unfathomable, unapproachable, unsurpassed. Peace, grace, and love. We have these trinities at work in our Christian walk here as church age believers. The peace that surpasseth all understanding, the grace that is uh, the unsurpassed grace, the unfathomable uh, love, all of these concepts that we have, they supply the ultimate soul stability. We have the capacity to walk with Christ even when we don't understand everything else that's happening. <laughs> Isn't that great? Because we don't have to know. All we have to know is that God knows. Uh, Job spent 40 chapters trying to figure out why, and by the time he got to the end in chapters 41 or 42, he realized he doesn't have to know why. He just has to repent and, and quiet his heart and, and trust in the Lord, and that's the issue there. And so if it's, uh, if it's unfathomable, great. If it's unapproachable, great. If it's unsurpassed, great. We have the grace, the love, the peace, everything that God supplies us for the ultimate soul stability. 
And uh, to me, we'll just real quickly remind ourselves of what we're looking at here. In, in Philippians 4, 7, it's the uh, surpassing all comprehension peace of God. In Romans eleven thirty three, remember what Romans eleven thirty three talks about. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I could even add unsearchable there to my uns statement. Uh, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. And yet, what are we called to do? We're called to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. We're called to fathom the unfathomable. It's our blessing as we have uh, described there. Ephesians 3, we have the surpassing grace that is extended towards each one of us. Verse 8 and verse 19. Ephesians 3, 8 and 19. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Well, if they're unfathomable, how can you be preaching them? <laughs> All right. The fact is, Paul fathomed the unfathomable because God reveals them to us. Mystery of doctrine is revealed to the church, even though it was withheld from previous dispensations, unfathomable to the previous generations. Down to verse 19. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Well, if it surpasses knowledge, how do I know it? <laughs> okay? It's marvelous. See, and this, to me, this is, this is, this is a thrill because we have these things that seem to be contradictory or seem to be oxymoronic and yet they're fulfilled in Christ for us. They're true and we simply embrace them. 1 Timothy 6.16. 1 Timothy 6.16. And at some point, you just learn to suspend, um, let, let your mind can just let it go and trust that God has a handle on it. And so you suspend your own insistence that you have to comprehend it all. First Timothy six sixteen. Here's the only the blessed only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so these are the passages of the New Testament that, that contain these references that seem to be contradictory, and yet they're not. They're marvelously true for each one of us. Yes, He dwells in unapproachable light, but by His grace, we approach Him. By His grace, we are uh, children of light. We, are, we have the, the light provided so that we can approach the unapproachable. We can know the unknowable. We can fathom the unfathomable and, uh, and all the rest. This is uh, a true blessing for each one of us. We made the point that while Old Testament saints could know God's shalom, New Testament saints have the greater Irene blessing. And there, there is. It's more than just a translation issue. It's more than just saying, well, the Greek word for peace is Irene. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And uh, the Septuagint Greek will use Irene to translate shalom in almost every case. And so it's just a translation issue. It's just a, a rough equivalent and, and no big deal. It is, it is a big deal. It is uh, more than just a translation issue because the depths of peace that we have by being baptized into union with Christ, the peace with God that we have is far greater than any uh, shalom capacity that any uh, Old Testament saint would ever have dreamed of. It is uh, an order of magnitude greater than anything an Old Testament saint would have ever dreamed of pertaining to any peace that they would have understood. All right, and so that ties together the issues there. Let's talk about guarding your heart and your mind. In guarding your heart and your mind, what is this about? How important is guard duty? And this to me is uh, is personal because I was an MP for four years and then a corrections officer for eight years. And I've done a lot of guard duty over the years. <laughs> I've guarded missiles. I've guarded uh, ammunition. I've guarded inmates. I've guarded a lot of things. And, uh, and uh, to my knowledge, I've never lost anything that I've guarded. Uh, no inmate ever escaped on my watch anyway. And, and no missiles ever disappeared while I was watching missiles rust. I think I spent a lot of time, Germany was boring in a lot of places when you're sitting on the missile site and watching the, you could watch the missiles and they didn't do anything, or you could watch the rabbits and they did a lot of things. They, uh, the rabbits, you could watch rabbits. In any event, guard duty, guard duty is important. 
And uh, when it says, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, I think a lot of believers, especially in this generation, need to open their eyes and say, wait a minute, that's important. That my heart needs to be guarded. My mind, my soul needs to be guarded. And it seems that uh, there is a, um, a, a lack of that. There is a tendency to just uh, you know, get on social media and spill everything to everybody and not, not, uh, there's no privacy anymore. There's nothing that's kept, uh, close to the vest. There's nothing that's kept personal. And, uh, and when you throw it all out there like that, what are you exposing your heart to? What are you exposing your mind to in, uh, in different things? This is another application we discussed pertaining to, uh, counseling and what happens when you go and you, you, uh, just, you know, bear your soul to somebody that's not entitled to that. Why would they be entitled to that, see, in terms of the intimacy that we should have with, uh, with the, the deepest matters of our being, the deepest matters of our soul? As far as I'm concerned, there's facets of my soul that belong to Sharon and no one else in this world. And there's facets of my soul that belong to immediate family, to my children and family members. Facets of my soul that, are, that belong, rightly belong to my flock. And your soul belongs to me. And that's how we work together as a body of Christ that the New Testament provides for the, the biblical uh, shepherding of souls is designed for the shepherd of a local assembly. And you don't have to pay him $120 every billable hour to, uh, to talk about your problems, see. And that's the other issue where worldly counseling is problem-focused instead of Christ-focused. Let's keep our eyes fixed on the Lord instead of our problems and the other things that are happening there. So guarding your hearts and your minds. And this verse tells us that our heart needs to be guarded. Our minds need to be guarded, and God's the one who's going to do it. And it's His peace that's going to do it when we have an appropriate prayer life engaged the way that it's supposed to be engaged. And so under point H, different kinds of guard duty that you can do, um, I'm calling this one the garrison duty, and it comes to the vocabulary of Freneo here. Hearts and minds are garrisoned by the peace of God. Hearts and minds are garrisoned by the peace of God so as to protect and rule the body and bride of Jesus Christ. And I do like the language of garrison, and I'll explain what that is here in a moment if you're not familiar, the the language of garrison as a specific guarding activity. Hearts and minds are garrisoned by the peace of God. So it's an internal guard duty as opposed to an external guard duty. It's an internal guard duty where the guard himself takes up residency in that venue. When you post garrisons in a city, for example, uh, you post uh, a guard there and you might, uh, and, and your troops are going to be living there and, and, and uh, involved with the population and, and, uh, and so forth. That's a garrison as opposed to an external guard where okay, you've set up a siege mentality around and you're not really, uh, yeah, you're guarding it, but you're not really a part of the process inside, if that makes any sense. Um, Freneo is the verb, it's number 5432. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It's not used that many times. And I think we're familiar with the various places where they are. Um, to, and then there's multiple words to guard too, by the way. This is one of several. And it does speak of the, of the residency, of the occupation and residency. In other words, the garrison duty that happens. When, uh, when we went into Kuwait City in, in Desert Storm, we were the MPs that garrisoned Kuwait City. And so that meant that we were occupying it. We were living there. We were policing it. We were guarding it. They put us, uh, we set up our headquarters at the airport, which was, uh, I guess, a safe enough location once we cleared it. It was uh, safe enough to set up there at the airport. The only bummer was that the initials of Kuwait International Airport spelled out KIA, which typically stands for killed in action, and we found that somewhat amusing as far as our duty station there. But we were the garrison, all right? If you leave a troop, uh, a body of troops there to garrison, that's what they're going to do. They're going to protect it, but they're also going to enforce the law. They're going to enforce the, uh, if, if it's an external law, Roman law, for example, uh, would, was enforced in Jerusalem because Pontius Pilate had a legion there that was garrisoning the, the area. And that becomes a significant application. To guard, to keep, or protect. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 32. This is what was happening in Damascus when Paul had to get out. There was a garrison there. And they, uh, the garrison was uh, in the city and guarding the gates, watching uh, who comes in and who goes out. 
And uh, they had an arrest warrant for the Apostle Paul. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city. In other words, he was garrisoning the city of uh, the Damascenes in order to seize me. And so I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. The reason why? Because he couldn't go out the gate. The, the, the city was under garrison. All the gates were being uh, staffed. All the, they were guarded. And that's the idea here too. And so when we're guarding our souls, are we guarding to keep things out or are we guarding to keep things in? What is it that uh, the peace of Christ is supposed to be doing? My trick question for you this morning because the answer is both. A garrison keeps the, the things out that need to be kept out and a garrison keeps the things in that the, uh, that the king wants to be kept in. And uh, we have this application to illustrate it there. And guarding your hearts and your minds means you don't want to be filling your mind with poison. You don't want to be filling your mind with, uh, with darkness. And so having a garrison uh, on your mind, a garrison in your soul, is useful because that keeps the wrong things from getting in there. Likewise, it keeps the right things from getting out. <laughs> if, in fact, um, you've hidden the Word of God in your heart, if, in fact, you've taken in doctrine, you've taken in the Word of God, you have it in residency, uh, you want to keep it there, don't you? Or do you want it to slip away through neglect? You want it to just slip away through disuse and you forget about the Word that you put in there. So a garrison is nice in that regard too. Guard duty that, that works both, day, uh, both ways, keeping the wrong things out and keeping the right things in. It's kind of a guarding activity that a garrison would perform. Galatians 3.23, another use of freneo in Galatians 3.23. This is in the chapter where he's discussing law and why was the law given after promise. And uh, you recall this, uh, Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then verse 23 says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody. In other words, we were garrisoned. We were under guard, the guardianship of Mosaic law, kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. And so this is the same verb that we're looking at this morning in Philippians 4, the same verb we saw back in our Galatians series in Galatians 3.23 about being kept in custody, about uh, the, the garrison guard duty that this verb speaks to. And finally then, 1 Peter 1.5 is the fourth and final use of, of phreneo in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.5, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are garrisoned by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It says protected. What kind of protection is that? It's a garrison kind of protection. The guard duty that God Himself is on in our eternal security. That we can't lose this. God Himself indwells us. God Himself is in us. His power protects us. The idea that we can lose our salvation means we can somehow overcome the omnipotence of God in holding us secure. And if you can overcome God's omnipotence, why do you need God to save you? Go save yourself if you have that kind of omnipotence related to that. I think the, a good parallel text to Philippians 4, 7, not only for uh, the peace of, of Christ to guard our hearts, is also the peace of Christ to rule our hearts. And that's what Colossians addresses. And in Colossians 3.15, we have the issue there. And this provides us a biblical background to um, answer the uh, the, the, the lunacy of, of our day and age, the advice that's given in Disney movies and other uh, commencement addresses and other idiotic advice given to young people today to follow their dreams or to follow their heart or listen to their heart. Different things there. Uh, no. <laughs> Not unless you're being transformed by the Word of God. Not unless your heart and your mind is being guarded by the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding, or you're allowing the Word of God to richly dwell within you. 
Uh, if it's guarding you, if it's ruling you, then, okay, then listen to your heart. But what you're really listening to is the Word of God that's shaping your heart is what you're listening to. So Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So here's where the irony provision that we have is far greater than any Old Testament believer would have ever dreamed of in any shalom application they would have had. Uh, The irony application we have, whereby it rules. It's the arbiter. It's the uh, it's the referee. Uh, we saw this as a the the idea of ruling in a, in a judicial ruling, whereby uh, like an umpire calls balls or strikes, or a, a football referee calls uh, you know pass interference or anything like that. The peace of Christ is going to rule. He's going to throw the flag. He's going to he's going to uh, uh, guard and rule uh, our life as the Word of God richly dwells within us. Verse sixteen. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. When you take in the Word of God, it is the living and abiding Word of God. You are to receive it implanted that's able to save your souls. When you take in doctrine, you're doing more than just accumulating information, learning facts, okay? Because facts don't come alive the way the Word of God comes alive. And so you take it in with humility, you receive the Word implanted, you let it dwell richly within you. So how are you tending your soul? How, what's the depth of your soil? Are you clearing away the rocks? Are you clearing away the thorns? Are you letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you? Because it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Both of those are you know, passive imperatives where you let it happen because that's what it wants to do. That's what it's designed to do. And that's what it will do if you let it, if you don't hinder it, see, the problem is, is we hinder it. We quench the Spirit. We quit listening to the Word of God. We don't let it richly dwell because we squash it. So let the uh, Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So just stop to consider what's the, the nature of your soul? What's the nature of your doctrine and residency? When you take in the Word of God, are you happy to have it in? You know, is it like, uh, or is it something you're not too happy to come in? Okay? Like people on your front porch. And they knock on the door and you open the door. And you think, hmm, okay, is this somebody I want to let in? Is this somebody I want to stay with me? Can they stay the night? Am I going to put them up in, in my best room? Or am I going to put them up in my smallest room? Am I going to put them up in the doghouse out back? Where, where am I going to put these people? <laughs> in fact, I don't even want them in the house. See, where does the Word of God stay? Is it richly dwelling within you? or uh, not so richly dwelling within you. That's on you. And that's the imperative there. So it guards and it rules. I think those two activities are vital. And letting that word richly dwell and, and as, we, as we meditate upon it, more than just when we're in Bible class. Here's where we're learning, but it's during the week when we're, when we're meditating upon it, when we're chewing on it, when we're fellowshipping with the Lord based upon the word that He's taught us. That's letting it dwell richly. See? And, uh, you know, not shutting it up when it tries to say something, <laughs> you know, and what are you doing here? Would you get out of here? You know, you talk too much and, uh, you know, go to your room and uh, lock it away because I don't want to hear what you have to say. That's not letting it dwell richly within you. Okay. Different aspects there. All right. Is that making sense? Do I need to illustrate anymore? I do have a joke that goes with this, by the way. I'll save it for later. All right. Tomorrow night, tomorrow night when we get together for our, our uh, New Year's Eve gathering, remind me to tell you the, the front porch joke that, uh, that I'm not telling you this morning. So here we have it. Hearts and minds, they're garrisoned by the peace of God so as to protect and rule the body and bride of Jesus Christ. No Old Testament believer had this. They could talk about shalom. They could talk about um, uh, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace uh, because his mind has stayed on thee. They, they had some aspects of shalom. They had some aspects of stability, soul stability through the word of God. I mean, read Proverbs sometime. When, you, when you're walking in wisdom, uh, wisdom will guard you. Wisdom will keep you. There is a stability for the Old Testament saint under shalom, but it is magnified beyond anything they dreamed of in terms of our provision uh, of irony in the New Testament. 
Now this gets us to verses 8 and 9, and this gets us to the 6th and 7th imperatives. Remember, there are seven imperatives in this stretch. Seven imperatives that are really giving us a recipe for how to stand firm. The, uh, the chapter begins with stand firm in the Lord my beloved there in verse 1. It, t- it commands us to stand firm, but it doesn't really say how. I think these seven imperatives are spelling out the mechanics, the recipe for how to stand firm. Seems to me anyway that uh, any believer that's fulfilling these seven imperatives uh, of rejoice and rejoice and, and everything that comes after that, if you're, if you're living out these seven imperatives, of course you're standing firm. Of course you are in this way standing firm in the Lord, my beloved. So here's the sixth and seventh imperatives. Verse eight centers on our thinking and verse nine centers on our practice. The sixth and seventh imperative center on the thinking and actions of rapture ready, standing firm, joy and crown kindred. Rapture ready, that was chapter three. Standing firm, that was Philippians 4.1. Joy and crown kindred, also verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. And so this really forms the conclusion to the whole segment, the whole paragraph here from verse 1 down to verse 9, on our thinking and on our actions. So verse 8 is the thinking, dwell on these things. Verse 9, practice these things. (laughs) It doesn't do you any good if you just dwell on it, dwell on it, dwell on it, and never put it into practice. All right? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So let's start with our thinking. Dwell on. Dwell on. New American Standard has dwell on. The uh, Christian Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible has dwell on. Uh, In the footnote of the New American Standard, it says, or ponder, or ponder. Some uh, Some of your NASB editions will have footnotes and some will not. Uh, but there is a footnote in some NASB editions that says, ponder these things. King James says, think on these things. New King James says, meditate on these things. So what is it? How do we translate logizomai? Uh, it's a present middle imperative of logizomai. L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Where we get logic. This is a, a word of concentrated thinking, of, of uh, uh, reckoning, regarding, considering, crediting. It's uh, number 3049 of the Strong's Index is actually one of my favorite words ever because it it speaks to how we get saved. The fact that my sins were reckoned to Jesus' account, right? That's logizomai. That's to reckon or to consider. The fact is I committed the sins, but in God's judicial function, he considered that Jesus did those sins. He considered, he reckoned my sins to Jesus' account. That's what logizomai is. And so, yes, it's a thinking term, but it's a thinking term that, that reckons, that appoints, that regards, that considers. And it's entirely within the purview of the one doing the thinking to determine how he thinks, if that makes any sense. So reckon, reckon, consider. And at the same time then, because my sins were reckoned to Jesus' account, his righteousness is reckoned to my account and yours, anyone who believes that the the blessings of salvation are such that when you believe in Jesus Christ, then the righteousness of Jesus Christ is then imputed to your account. Reckoned, considered, our verb here today, logizomai, okay, to reckon or to consider. Kenneth Wiest in his uh, expanded paraphrase in the New Testament, he said, these things make the subject of careful reflection. Mm, okay, I guess I can like that. Um, I'm going to share some, uh, some other aspects here this morning. Uh, there's a text by Greenlee where he does a exegetical summary of this verse. In fact, I recommend these exegetical summaries. And let me fly it out here. I forgot I had some of these other windows open. All right. Too large? 
Perfect. All right. Back row commandos can even read. All right. These are all the nouns. I'm actually dealing with a verb first, even though the verb comes pretty late in the sentence. All right. So here's. If I make it too large, then I can't see what I'm looking at. Get past all these nouns. All right. Here we go. So we have a present middle imperative of Lagidzamai. Logizamai. And of course it's a deponent verb. It, it's really in an active sense, even though it's in middle or passive form. Um, but here's different ways you can handle it. And what this uh, Greenlee, what his text does is really marvelous. His text searches all these other texts and, and displays them for you in a, in, a, in, a, in a sequence or displays them for you in a, in a summary of what it does. So uh, he tells you it's an imperative of Logizamai. The Lao and, and Nita uh, number is 30.9 if you use that lexicon. Uh, it tells you if you use the BDAG lexicon, what page to turn to. Um, as far as uh, BAGD is concerned, which is the first edition of BDAG, it uh, renders this as to consider or to think about. Um, the Lawanita lexicon renders it as to think about. The New Testament commentary renders it to think about. The NIV Bible, the New Revised Standard Bible. So what this is doing is it's searching not only Bibles, Right, like I did with New King James, King James, uh, New uh, Holman Christian Standard. It's searching Bibles, but it's also searching lexicons, and it's also searching um, commentaries to see how this verb was was handled in all of these sources. How it was handled by Bibles, lexicons, and commentaries. And so, in the New Testament commentary and in the New Revised Standard NIV, they all rendered logizomai as to think about, King James to think on, um, E A to think upon. I forget what E A is. Oh, John Eady in his commentary, a mule to think out, to think out, to ponder, to take account of. Now, this one starts to approach what I'm driving at this morning: to take account of. Because of the way that logizomai is used throughout the New Testament as a reckoning, as to as an accounting figure. And so the International Critical Commentary addresses it like that. To take into account, that's plumber, to reckon with, Linsky, to let one's mind dwell on. You got your Bible translations there as well as B-A-G-D. To let one's mind be filled with. Now that one I'm not as comfortable with, and that one seems to take some liberties. That's the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic text. To fill one's mind with, today's English version. To keep one's mind on, that's the Wycliffe Evangelical Commentary, which uh, I find useful in a lot of places. Um, Word Biblical Commentary, to focus one's mind on. To fill one's thoughts with, to keep in one's thoughts, to direct one's thoughts wholly to. That's another Catholic text, New American Bible. The meaning is to take these things into account in making their decisions to take these things into account in making their decisions. And this is where I think we start to address the real issue of imputation and the real issue of thoughtful, logical consideration. All right? To take these things into account in making their decisions. To consider thoughtfully the value of the things referred to. In fact, I like this so much, I want to highlight it. I want to color it green because I agree with it. To consider thoughtfully the value of things referred to. Again, color it green. Maybe mix a little yellow in there. All right. And so in my color shades, if it's red, I flaming disagree with it. But if it's yellow, I'm 50-50. If it's green, I'm in wholehearted agreement. All right. (laughs) My color scheme is kind of like stoplights. All right. Red, yellow, green. To take these things into account in making decisions. What things? Well, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise. So those are the, those are the criteria. 
All right? And based on those criteria, then I'm going to shape my thinking. I'm going to shape my thinking. I'm going to start to make my own um, imputations, my own uh, reckonings. Okay? Because we control what we reckon. We, Romans says, reckon yourself to be alive to God, but dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we're commanded for how do we consider. We're supposed to consider the other person as more important than yourself. This is all up to us and how we consider these things. Okay? And we do it in, in the earthly realm all the time. We make, we make value judgments. We estimate different things. You know, we could be at a store and I would look at a product and I would estimate that that's worth an awful lot. And I would estimate that because it's worth so much, the price tag that's on it is small. It's laughable. It's, 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 it's ludicrous. Why, why do they have such a small price tag on this product that's worth so much? And I think, I can't pass that up. I've got to buy that. I, 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 before I leave the store, I've got, to, I've got to take that with me. Because the value that I've credited is so much greater than the price they've listed on the, on the tag. See? The only problem, of course, is that my wife is with me. And she has logizomai herself. She's made her own logizomai application. And she has credited a much lower value or worth. In fact, she has credited that so low in value or worth that she also finds the price tag to be ludicrous. Just ludicrous the other direction. She can't imagine wasting that much money on something so pathetically worthless. Okay? And this is how it works. And two different people who love each other, two different people can have entirely different Ways in which they look at Zemai, okay, in which they value, in which they credit, in which they impute worth. All right? And 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 it can switch like that. When you go from one store to the next in the mall, now the shoe's on the other foot. And now it's an entirely different application. And I can reverse the illustration and, and prove that point too. And so taking these things into account. And so literally, these objects, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. We got those six whatevers, and we got these two if there is excellence and if anything worthy of praise. Um, these eight criteria, really six with two headings, with these criteria in mind, we're supposed to reckon those. Reckon those. So, uh, however, we're going to handle, I think, Legidzimai really comes to the essence of this imperative. Dwell on these things. Reckon these things, impute these things, consider these things. Consider thoughtfully the value of these things referred to. Take these things into account in making decisions. I think this is really the, the, the uh, emphasis here in verse 8. So reckon, even before you put them into practice, before you, uh, and that's verse 9, of course, is the practice, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so practice these things. Before you can practice the Christian way of life, before you can make any kind of uh, application of the Christian way of life, you've got to have the right kind of logizomai, the right kind of uh, imputing going on, the right kind of reckoning going on. And that reckoning centers on these items that are listed here. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, it's not worth thinking about. It's not worth shaping your decisions on. It's not worth... Uh, uh, winging it in the Christian walk. Remember that it says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time for the days are evil. The Christian walk is not to, not to be uh, taken lightly or sloppily. You have to be careful how you walk. And thinking this way will, uh, will get you through it. All right, so that's what we're dealing with there. And uh, so these two statements here 
have really got me excited, and I'm thankful for Greenlee, and I'm thankful for his exegetical guide, because this now helps me to pinpoint, I say, you know what? I now want to go read what Lang's talking about. Um, I want to go now read uh, this commentary here, Michael Hugh, uh, and the Moffat New Testament commentary. Uh, I want to see what, uh, this is the Holman, no, Harper's New Testament commentary, F.W.A. Bear. Word Biblical Commentary by Gerald Hawthorne. In fact, Hawthorne's been blessing me for several months now. There's TDNT and Translator's Handbook. So this then, uh, and the ICC, International Critical Commentary, Marvin Vincent. Uh, this this helps me to, to pinpoint, you know what, I... Uh, I didn't really like any of these other things. That kind of didn't do anything for me. This didn't do anything for me. I'm not going to go look up Linsky because I think that's not really right. I can save a lot of time not going to those places because this exegetical guy just gave me a summary of what all those other places are doing with that particular verb. Anyway, I find that as a useful, useful blessing. Logizomai translation wheel. This is what we deal with with logizomai, all right? To credit, to consider, to regard, to take into account. Blessed is the man whose sins are not taken into account. This is what we're talking about with respect to imputation, with respect to how do we consider and our accountability for considering things the the way God tells us to consider things. It's all about the choices we make in our thinking and our attitude. And so uh, whether it's factually accurate or not, right? Maybe the other person isn't more important than you, but you consider that they are. See? Because the fact of the matter is, I'm the sinner. But my sins were imputed to Jesus Christ. God considered that they weren't my sins. God considered they were Jesus' sins. All right? Factually, they weren't. Factually, they were mine. All of us. And then the righteousness he gave me, he considered that it was my righteousness. Factually, it wasn't. Factually, it was Jesus' righteousness. But God considered that it was my righteousness. And so it comes down to the consideration and what you choose to consider. And we're told to consider whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. These items here, this is what we're supposed to consider. And this is what we're supposed to be dwelling on as we make our decisions, as we put our Christian walk into practice. Sometimes it gets rendered as to number, to reckon, to think, to suppose, to maintain, to reason. It really is a reasoning, um, a reasoning uh, activity. All right, so there's that. We have six adjectives, so sub-point one. Six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwelling. Six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwelling. What it is we keep our mind in. What it is we, uh, we, we dwell on. Six adjectives. And these are the ones that are introduced here by the whatever. Whatever or whatsoever. Whatever things are. Whatsoever things are. These are neuter plurals, so they identify whatsoever things that are presently characterized by the following adjectives. Whatsoever things are presently, presently are true. We're all about the truth. We're all about the truth. And the adversary, of course, is disguising the truth and polluting the truth and, and substituting the exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But we're all about the truth. And we'll go through each of these six things. And then beyond those six things, we have the if there is any if there is any, and there's two of those, and those form a summary of the first six, and they really allow us to expand upon the first six so that we realize we're not really dealing with an exhaustive list. These are representative of of perhaps other things that we could add to it as well. So six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwelling. What it is I want to keep my mind on. And I don't know, are you good at at, uh, daydreaming? Are you good at, um, do you find that you can just imagine and think about and dwell on something? That uh, you can have a conversation with somebody about a topic 
And then you just keep thinking about it and thinking about it. Meanwhile, they go away and they're doing other things and they've moved on with their life and their day. And you come back six hours later, you're still thinking about that same thing that you were... And so you, you go to them and you say something as if, as if they should be on the same wavelength you are because clearly, why did they start thinking about something different when you've been thinking about this for the last six hours? And so you try to resume a conversation that in your mind never stops. And that other person struggles because you're asking them to, to resume a conversation that they stopped hours ago. And, oh, wait a minute, are you still thinking about that? Okay. So what is it you think about? Are you thinking about work all the time, constantly, never turn it off? Are you thinking about sports all the time, constantly, never, never turn it off? Are you thinking about politics all the time, constantly, never turn it off? Okay. And you ask yourself, wait a minute, why is my mind dwelling on these things? Why am I so consumed with politics, so consumed with college football, so consumed with Scrabble, so consumed with whatever else? Okay. That I realized, man, I'm, it's bedtime already. In fact, it's two hours past bedtime already, and I hadn't even thought about the Lord once today. I hadn't been in the Word. I hadn't been in prayer. What have I been doing all day? Well, I've been daydreaming about this. I've been daydreaming about that. I've been, my mind has been everywhere it's not supposed to be. Okay? And it doesn't even have to be sinful. There could be nothing wrong with it. You know, it doesn't have to be sinful. But if it's not whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... If it's not the things of the Lord, and we're, we'll talk about the, 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 the pinnacle of these descriptions, really this verse is talking about Jesus. Right? Jesus. He's the truth. Jesus. He's the one, the one worthy of all honor. Jesus is right, righteous. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. All of these describe Jesus. All of these describe the Word of God. All of these describe your brothers and sisters in Christ when you're occupied with Christ and living in the Word of God. So I just gave it away, but here we have it. All right. So these are the whatsoever things, and they're all neuter plural. They're all introduced by hasa. So uh, hasa truth and, and uh, hasa honorable and hasa right. Uh, we have these whatsoever things that are presently characterized by the following adjectives. And we're going to go through them, and I've got 13 minutes left this morning, and then we'll have Oh, we won't have Wednesday. We'll come back to this when we come back in the new year. We'll come back to these six adjectives. Let me just get them introduced to you today. If you want to do it yourself in your word study, I recommend it. There's, Logos is making it so easy to do this. Making it so easy. Guide for the shortcut is unavailable. Okay. Don't tell me what's unavailable. I was curious about that. That happened to me one other time. All right. Once you do it, then you'll be coloring and you'll be, uh, I went with the uh, green, blue, red this time. Different color scheme for Bibles than I have for, <laughs> than I have for commentaries. I never disagree with my Bible, okay? So I use a different color scheme for my Bibles. Don't think that there's a, a disagreement in my Bible. All right. Finally then, brethren, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, six whatever is's. And they're described here with the Hasa. Uh, hasa, hasa, estin. So hasa, whatever, estin, is, presently is, presently is, and that's a glory. God will not have us to consider what something used to be or what a person used to be, but what something is, what a person is. I love the, the character traits of an, of an overseer in, in First Timothy. They're all present tense. What is his life characterized by now? Not did he used to be a drunk, is he a drunk now? All right? Not uh, is he a one-woman man now? You know, whatever he was in his past, he was in his past, but what is he now? The present tense imperative of the, of the issues there in, in uh, Titus and in 1 Timothy. Here, likewise, is present tense. Hasa estin, whatever presently is now. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good. And... Uh, and then the summaries of excellence and praise, we'll deal with those as we get to that. All right, so here's, uh, here's a little clue if you're a Logos user. You've always been able to use the exegetical guide before. And, uh, you know, exegetical guide on Philippians 4.8, you can bring that up here under guides, exegetical guide. 
Let it populate. Give it some time. And uh, it's gonna, your little research buddy is going to do all kinds of things for you here. And uh, while he's doing it, if it takes a minute, it's well worth it. He's thinking his way through. He's finding everything for you. He's finding the textual variants in your uh, commentaries, in your apparatuses. He's finding the editions, the transcriptions, the ancient versions, the online manuscripts. Then he's giving you a word-by-word. And this is the best part of the study guide right here is the word-by-word. That's what I'm going to show you here in a moment. Get past the word-by-word. He's giving you other things after the word-by-word. Giving you the grammatical constructions. So you're finding your first-class condition here of if that's in this verse. You're finding your apodosis, your clause-level connections. A lot of grammatical things. Now that's important in some applications, but then there's other studies. You don't even want to look at that. So you can minimize that. The important words. Isn't every word important? (laughs) All right. But here too, these are the the lemmas. These are the words that your commentaries have picked up on. Your commentaries have done uh, work with the words that are there. Your lemma in passage. Anyway, this is a very long study. You got your ancient literature. When was Philippians 4.8 quoted by the Apostolic Fathers? When was it quoted by the Church Fathers? Uh, works of Josephus, Judaica. Your commentaries for Philippians 4.8. Your journals, your grammars, visualizations. There's a lot there. This includes your sentence diagrams. All right. Is that overwhelming? Is that like drinking from a fire hose? Is that, is that like just sitting there going, wow, where do I start? Well, in the, in the uh, Logos 8, which just came out last month, they've streamlined this, and now every one of those individual panels, there were like eight of those panels, ten of those panels, every one of those individual panels can now be separately run. So for example, if all you really want to worry about is the word-by-word component of that huge report, you can now just open the word-by-word of Philippians 4.8. And your little research buddy is going to spell that out for you word-by-word. You see what it's doing there? I need to make that larger too. Larger, larger, larger. All right. And so it's taking the text and it's it's giving you a, a word report. Only a word report, not the full exegetical guide, but only the word-by-word panel from the exegetical guide is, is placed in this window now. This becomes very useful. You can move this window around, you can fly it out, you can put it on a different screen while you're working on this screen. You could do different things. And you got your Greek text on the left, your English text on the right. Um, your research buddy tends to streamline things for you, so he's not going to do your thes and your and your whatevers and your, your relative pronouns, things like that. He will if you tell him to but most of the time he won't, okay? But the words that are in bold there, finally, brethren, true, honorable, right, the words that are in bold there are the words that he does. And then as you scroll down, look what you see here. You, and, and even if you don't read Greek, you can still scroll down and you can see, okay, there's loipon, there's your finally. And it gives you uh, the vocabulary, it gives you the color wheel. If you want, you can click on that, it'll fly that out. It shows you the, the, the sense, not only what it's translated, but its sense. It shows you the different lexicons you can look that word up in. It'll even pronounce it for you. If I turn my sound on, which I keep off in the pulpit, it'll pronounce it for you. Okay? Adelphoi, brethren. Esten, is. Okay? And it, it makes it emphatic because it is whatever is presently. And then you start working your way through. And it lists all six of these adjectives right here. It lists both of the nouns right here. It spells them all out for you in a summary fashion, just in this one little report. Your uh, adjective, nominal, plural, neuter. And uh, what does it mean? And what's its sense? And here's the lexicons where you can pull it up. If you want to do more on it, you just simply click on it and it opens up your color wheel. It opens up your word study and, and takes you right there. Anyway, this is, this is marvelous because then you can just work your way down through and you can think, okay, Alethe, Semna, Dekaya, Hagna, Prosphile, Euphemia. You just go one by one by one down and all the words are listed right there. 
And in, in a very short time, you can work your way through any text. I mean, this is a, a longer one than usual where you got these six nouns and, or the six adjectives and two nouns. Uh, but to have this in a, in a report like this is, uh, is fun. And I'm glad that they made this a separate window now that you can uh, open up independently. All right. So whatsoever things. Let's start with whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are true. And we're going to see so many of these passages. We have the adjectives that are being used, and we're going to find that they're descriptive of Jesus. Or we're going to find that they're descriptive of His Word. That God is true, though every man a liar. That Jesus is true. Even His critics know that He's true. And they try to use that in their weaselly attacks against Him. Uh, the things that are true. And how uh, humans can come along and be jaded. Humans can come along like Pontius Pilate and wash His hands and just say, you know, what is truth? As if, uh, you know, um, a human being can, can, uh, can judge between such things. All right. So in our time remaining, how much of this do I want to get into? <laughs> well, let's start with this one, alethes. You, you might remember aletheia is the noun of truth. This is the adjective uh, related to aletheia. This is alethes. It just ends with an E-S ending. Uh, Strong's Numbers 227, the 26 New Testament uses. And uh, Matthew twenty two sixteen, John seven eighteen, Romans three four, Second Corinthians six eight. These uh, this will give us a sense for it, but I think a very significant sense, particularly as it relates to Jesus and as it relates to His Word, which I think is the biggest takeaway from this verse. Bottom line: What's this verse telling us to do? Occupy with Christ. <laughs> okay, occupy with Christ. Continually be thinking on. Reckoning Christ and how it relates to Christ in all of these different uh, elements. So Matthew twenty two sixteen. They sent their disciples to him saying with the Herodians, along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. We know that you are alethes and teach the way of God in aletheia, in truth. And you defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Now getting over the fact, of course, that this is entirely disingenuous on their part, that they are weasels, okay? That, I mean, when do the Pharisees and the Herodians ever get along? Never, except for the fact that they both hate Jesus. So that causes them to get together and come and, and uh, try to trap him with this. They think they've got this great trap. Is it lawful to, to pay the tax, the poll tax to Caesar or not? And they think that however he answers, they're going to get him. And uh, this, is their, this is their brilliance at work here. Um, setting all that aside for the moment, they're, they're uh, buttering him up. They're uh, flattering him. They're, they're introducing their question with this flowery praise about, oh, you know, you are so truthful. You teach the way of God in truth. You're, you're all about the truth. You defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Okay. And that's how they're kind of setting the stage to warm him up to their question here. And uh, as weaselly as it is, as disingenuous as it is, we have to stop and say, you know what? They're right. <laughs> Everything they're saying is ac- absolutely accurate. He is truthful in all that he presents. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He does speak what he hears from the Father in truth. And uh, he is not partial to anyone. Everything they're saying here is, is accurate right down the line. All right, John seven eighteen. More uh, amazement here on the part of the crowds. It was now the midst of the feast. Jesus went up to the temple, began to teach, and the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How has he learned? In other words, he didn't go to their schools, so he clearly is an idiot. And Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not my, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. This is why we tell the sheep, if you're hungry for the Word of God and you seriously want to know the truth, you want to say, Lord, show me the truth. He will show you the truth. Whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. That's alethes. There is no unrighteousness in him. 
That's why a ministry such as this one, a ministry that takes the Word of God line upon line, precept upon precept, verse by verse, we're not hiding anything, we're not afraid of anything, show us the Scriptures. If the Scripture says it, we believe it. And, and that's what it comes down to. It's all about what is true. Okay, Romans 3, 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 8, but I'm out of time, so look those up on your own. Uh, we'll come back to this in the new year when we come back in our next available opportunity. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. And we want to dwell on what is true, what is pure, what is right, what is lovely. We want to dwell on these things, Father. Ultimately, we want to occupy with Jesus Christ, and we want to keep our thinking in the Word of God. And so, Father, we can base all of our imputation decisions based upon the Word of God. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, Father. That's where we want to keep our mind. Not in the politics or the worldly things, Father. This world is passing it away along with it, its loss. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.